BLM's totalitarian youth, Sieg Heil. Videos have been circulating of young bestial thugs, whites and blacks, women and men, shrieking in the faces of alfresco diners, commanding them to raise a fist in solidarity with BLM slash Antifa totalitarians. To leftists, nothing says freedom quite like coerced performative acts. See for yourself the future of the Democratic Party. If you go to this article online, there's two very short videos of these assaults on diners. Maybe these young bestial thugs never learned about Chairman Mao's cultural revolution and the Red Guard composed of young people that Mao used to intimidate, humiliate, and attack his political enemies. The New York Times described the Red Guard's efforts like this, quote, Students who answered Mao's call for continuing revolution targeted political enemies for abuse and public humiliation. Under a campaign to wipe out the four olds, old ideas, old customs, old culture, old habits, they carried out widespread destruction of historical sites and cultural relics, end quote. Or maybe today's totalitarian culture destroyers are inspired by the Red Guard, whose salute they mimic. Before Chairman Mao thought to use easily indoctrinated youth to advance cultural oppression, the Nazi regime had mastered such a tactic. Here's an eerily relevant description of the Nazi Party's exploitation of German youth to advance the pernicious Nazi cause, and I quote, Millions of German young people were won over to Nazism in the classroom and through extracurricular activities. In January 1933, the Hitler Youth had approximately 100,000 members, but by the end of the year, this figure had increased to more than 2 million. By 1937, membership in the Hitler Youth increased to 5.4 million before it became mandatory in 1939. The German authorities then prohibited or dissolved competing youth organizations. Education in the Third Reich served to indoctrinate students with the National Socialist worldview. Nazi scholars and educators glorified Nordic and other Aryan races, while labeling Jews and other so-called inferior peoples as parasitic bastard races incapable of creating culture or civilization. After 1933, the Nazi regime purged the public school system of teachers deemed to be Jews or to be politically unreliable. Most educators, however, remained in their posts and joined the National Socialist Teachers League. 97% of all public school teachers, some 300,000 persons, had joined the League by 1936. In fact, teachers joined the Nazi Party in greater numbers than any other profession. In the classroom and in the Hitler Youth, instruction aimed to produce race-conscious, obedient, self-sacrificing Germans who would be willing to die for Fuhrer and fatherland. Devotion to Adolf Hitler was a key component of Hitler youth training. Schools played an important role in spreading Nazi ideas to German youth. While censors removed some books from the classroom, German educators introduced new textbooks that taught students love for Hitler, obedience to state authority, militarism, racism, and anti-Semitism, end quote. Since some Americans, particularly leftists, struggle with analogical thinking, let's paraphrase that description to make its relevance easily comprehensible. And I'll quote, 
Millions of American young people were won over to socialism, critical race theory, and LGBT theory in the classroom and through extracurricular activities. By 2020, membership in or support for what became known as the intersectionality regime had increased dramatically. Dominant leftist cultural forces had persecuted youth organizations like the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts into reinventing themselves to align with the intersectionality regime. Education in America served to indoctrinate students with the socialist, racialist, pansexual worldview. Race, sexuality, gender, and Marxist scholars and educators glorified people of color, homosexuals, opposite-sex impersonators, and Marxists, while labeling whites, heterosexuals, conservative Christians, and capitalists hateful oppressors and bigots incapable of creating culture or civilization. The race, gender, sexuality, class, intersectionality regime purged the public school system of teachers deemed to be members of the oppressor classes or to be politically unreliable. Most educators, however, remained in their posts and joined the race, gender, sexuality, class, intersectionality regime. In fact, teachers joined the intersectionality regime in greater numbers than any other profession. In the classroom, corporate boardrooms, social media, the arts, the mainstream press, and organizations like BLM and Antifa, instruction was aimed to produce race-conscious, class-conscious, sexual deviance-supporting activists who would take the fight to the streets. Devotion to the intersectionality regime was a key component of cultural conditioning. Schools played an important role in spreading intersectionality ideas to American youth. While censors removed some books from the classroom, educators introduced new textbooks that taught students love for socialism, racism, the trans ideology, homosexuality, and anti-Christianity, end quote. Co-founder of the Toronto chapter of BLM, Yusra Kogali, once tweeted, and I quote her, white people are recessive genetic defects. This is factual. Black people, simply through their dominant genes, can literally wipe out the white race if we had the power to, end quote. She tweeted, quote, Please, Allah, give me the strength to not kill these white folks out here today, end quote. And in 2015, she tweeted, quote, Whiteness is not humanness. In fact, white skin is subhuman, end quote. Kind of, sort of, maybe sounds like a Nazi talking about Jews. Compulsory performance of the Sig Heil, Red Guard, Black Panthers, BLM salute is part of the effort to compel free thinkers to pretend to embrace the ideas of slave reparations, systemic racism, and collective guilt, which hold individuals culpable for sins they have never committed. The notion of collective guilt for the past sins of other individuals is both anti-biblical and poisonous. In a speech delivered in 1988 in Vienna on the 50th anniversary of the Nazi occupation of his home country of Austria, Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl warned against the dangerous idea of collective guilt. And I quote him, My father died in Theresienstadt camp. My brother did not return from Auschwitz. My mother was killed in the gas chambers of the same camp, and my first wife's young life came to an end in Bergen-Belsen camp. And yet, at the same time, I will ask you 
not to expect to hear from my mouth a single word of hatred. For whom should I hate? I knew only the victims. I do not know the perpetrators, at least not personally. And I categorically refuse to attribute collective as opposed to personal guilt. There is no such thing as collective guilt. Believe me, today is not the first occasion on which I have said that. I have been saying it since the day I was liberated from my fourth and last concentration camp. It is my conviction that anyone who assigns collective guilt to every Austrian or German citizen between the ages of zero and 50 is committing a reprehensible and insane act. Or to put it in psychiatric terms, it would be reprehensible if it were not insane, and it would be a relapse into the Nazi ideology of collective family guilt, the difficult German word, Sippenhaftung, here refers to the dangerous Nazi dogma of kin liability, tainted bloodline, or genetic guilt by association. Let this be said to all those who believe they have a right to expect people to feel guilty or even ashamed of something they did not do or failed to do, but something their parents or grandparents had to answer for. I'll tell you, I think there are only two races of people, those who are decent people and those who are not. That distinction goes right through every nation and within nations right through every political party and every other group. Even in the concentration camps here and there, we came across more or less decent people who belonged to the SS. And in the same way, there were also scoundrels amongst the prisoners. The decent people are in the minority. They have always been in the minority and I think always will be. But the danger lies elsewhere. The danger is to be found in a regime or a system which brings the scoundrels to the top. In other words, which puts the reins of power in the hands of the worst representatives of the people. Therein lies the true peril, and no nation can claim to be immune from such danger, which is why I presume to say that in principle any country is capable of perpetrating the Holocaust. In my view, there are only two types of politicians— The first is the politician who believes that the end justifies the means, any means, even terrorist means. The second type is profoundly aware that there are means that can desecrate even the most sacred ends. The need of the day is that all men of goodwill should finally reach their hands out to each other across all the graves and divisions, end quote. One of my daughters once expressed disappointment that I hadn't saved any of my clothes from the early 1970s. I explained that although styles return, they never return in exactly the same form. Same goes for history, which explains why even remembering history doesn't guarantee we won't repeat it. Today's cultural revolution has all the earmarks of past revolutions, And yet far too few Americans recognize those earmarks because on the surface this one appears different. Unless we tear the blinders from our eyes and look clearly at the big picture, the republic as we have known it will be gone in a short time. The children and grandchildren of millennials will grow up in a world of oppression and depravity, the likes of which America has never known, but civilizations around the world and throughout history have. Viktor Frankl points to the solution to evil in our midst, and I quote him, Please remember one thing. Resistance always requires heroism, and there is only one person of whom anyone has the right to expect heroic acts, 
And that is oneself.